Hope everyone had a happy Thanksgiving. Hope the turkey coma has worn off. Chuck Zada and Mark Schofield here for Inside the Pile on the podcast. And this was a, I think the word big week is probably doing it an understatement. Uh, we had s- so much action this week, actually, that we, we were doing our pre-show prep, and we actually had to cut a few things out just because we didn't have time to actually cover them. But I do want to get right to it then and welcome in my co-host, Mark Schofield. And Mark, I hope uh, your Thanksgiving was enjoyable. It was enjoyable, man, but I got to get to the gym once we get done here. Put on a few LBs, but um, it was a good time. Good holiday, you? I did seven plates of turkey stuffing and mashed potatoes by the time it was done. I'm proud of myself, man. That, Not going to lie. impressive work. That's proud really of myself. Work. You should be. You should be proud of that. Say It was a great weekend for me. I, I stuffed my face all weekend. Guess what? I Because I ran just about every day, though, I only put on two pounds. That, that's probably a more impressive feat than the, the food that you put away. Two pounds. I, I, you know, holiday weekend, the last thing you want to do is drag yourself out to the gym or even just do some road work, but good for you. I was down in the warm 70-degree weather of North Carolina. I had nothing but good thoughts when I was out running, so it was outstanding for me. But let's dig into uh, to some of the stuff that we saw this week. It was uh, this, this was a pretty amazing weekend of football, I thought. There were a number of really good games out there. But I think where we have to start is probably with the craziest finish of the NFL season so far, and that is the Monday night football game between Baltimore, the Baltimore Ravens, and Cleveland Browns, who going into this game between them only had five wins but gave us one of the best finishes of the year. Yeah, it it was pretty impressive because, you know, coming into this Monday night game, I don't think many people really wanted to watch it. Um, you know, you've got Baltimore, you've got Cleveland. It's just not the matchup that you'd expect. I mean, I guess it looked good on paper, you know, preseason when they were putting the schedule together. But like you said, it gave us an incredible finish. I didn't watch it live. I couldn't. I was, I was, I was with the game early. But you know, you've mentioned in the past that as a, you're a member of the kickers union. Well, I am a card carry member of the quarterback union. And when McNown went down and Austin Davis came in, yep, and Cleveland fans started to boo because they wanted to see Johnny Manziel. It's in our bylaws, man. We cannot condone or support the boon of a quarterback. So I had to tune away. So I didn't get to see it live, but my phone exploded when the drive happened. You know, Twitter exploded. It was one of the craziest finishes. And watch it this morning. I understand why. So let's let's go right to the finish because this is really what I want to focus on here. What what talk to me about the lead up to that kick. I'll get into the kick later, but talk to me about maybe the five minutes before that and what was going on. Well, I mean we got to start with you know, Baltimore's got the football tie game. There's, you know, a minute or so left. Yep. And Schaub throws a pick right at midfield. Not a good pick either. I Not mean, a it, good pick either. It, it, I mean, you had a little bit. The cornerback jumped the route there. Yeah, but it, Williams it, did a great job jumping that route. It looked like to me that they were in his own coverage, cover three, I think, because he had outside leverage on yep. the receiver. But, you know, he read the curl route. You know, Gruden said that, you know, he's a guy that likes to jump routes, and that must have come from some film study because he timed it perfectly gets right under the, sh- the throw from Schaub makes the interception so that sets up now you've got tie ball game 27 27 Cleveland's got the ball in the Baltimore 46 they only re- need about 15 maybe 20 yards to get into field goal range for yep. Coon. they've got two timeouts and then things kind of go haywire yeah what so talk to me so you had one completion it was that a short completion over the middle correct it was like a six yeah, or seven yard pass slant to heart line on you know i think it was a slant flat concept they've got cover one so he gets six yards that's gets them down to the 40 they've got two timeouts left how did Clark's they not take run. a timeout there i don't know why they didn't take the timeout 
you've got two. You figure you want to save one. Ideally, you'd like to save one for the field goal try. Yep. And, um, and, and, know, and then case scenario, you can spike it. As you know, absolute worst case scenario, you can go fire drill from the sideline. You know, teams practice that. Yep. We did it on Thursdays. You guys probably did it on Thursdays in the, you know, up at Dartmouth where you practice getting on the field without with the clock running and just yep. getting lining up and kicking it. Yep. But those are worst case scenarios. You've got two timeouts. They don't take it. Clock's still running. And then, you know, Davis is kind of adjusting protection. Just snap. If you're not going to take the timeout, get up there and snap the ball. Well, and in particular, I think he let, I think it was 25 to 30 seconds run off the clock. It was, I think, below 20 seconds left when they finally snapped the ball there. And then you snap the ball, he goes on a little roll out to the right, has some space actually, so he takes off running, and then slides in bounds. He could have easily gotten to the sideline and gotten out of bounds. It, it's, it's just, what do you, but the clock management, the decision making, not just from the coaching staff, but from Davis there then, I mean, it's, it just makes, Little to no sense at that point. And then what I, what was probably the cherry on top, and this was one I was looking at this morning, then you have this first down play on the Baltimore 33. Yep. You hand off to Duke Johnson, thinking, okay, maybe we'll try to center the ball for the kicker. And Duke Johnson runs off the right guard, and the ball ends up still on the right hash, which is right. the toughest place to kick for a right-footed kicker. Yeah, and, and – Let's talk about that play construction, too, because it's not like they just ran a simple dive with everybody power-blocking man-on-man <laughs> no. straight ahead. They pulled the left guard. Right, so it wasn't like Johnson just said, oh, I'm going to do this on my own. No, this was a designed run from the right hash mark to the right hash mark. Mike Tanier had a great tweet in the aftermath when Twitter was exploding with what, what had happened during this drive, during this sequence. With The tweet was basically, did they just run a play from the right hash mark to get the ball on the right hash mark? Yeah, it, it made absolutely no sense. And then to pull the left guard in front of it, it's a slow development blocking scheme. C.J. Mosley blows this up in the backfield. I mean, Duke Johnson gets back to the line of scrimmage, but it doesn't move the ball at all. It keeps it on the right hash mark, which, like you said, it's the toughest place for a right-footed kicker to kick from. Well, and, and that's what I don't understand because here, here's how you can figure out where a kicker likes to kick from these days is the NFL with the new extra point rules making them kick 33-yard extra points, they allow the kicker to pick where on the field they're going to kick from. So I went and I said, okay, I want to see where Travis Coons is actually kicking from on his extra points. He's kicking from the middle. So I figured that's where he wants the ball to be. Now, for a right-footed kicker, when you're swinging through the ball and you're coming through, you're taking all of this motion and just whipping this torque through the, through the kicking zone, the natural inclination is to fall off to the right. It's just like when you have a golf swing. Your natural inclination is to start you know, essentially inside and go out, which isn't what you want to do with your swing. You want to have that nice outside-in swing, or rather is it... I'm, back, I'm making it backwards, but in any case, your natural inclination is to fall off to the outside. So... Putting the ball on the right hash mark, it doesn't make any sense there. It's 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 the last place that you'd want to see that ball. And, of course, then you end up with this kick, which there's two major problems with this kick. The first one, the left guard and left tackle on the protection get absolutely blown up. In particular, the left tackle gets pushed back about a yard and a half, which is a huge problem. You can't be going backwards on a kick there. The second one is with Coons. Coons hits the ball just about in the middle of the ball, and ESPN Sports Science actually put something out after I was tweeting about it, and they put something out that said that the ball came off at a 22-degree angle. Now, you're typically looking for anywhere between 35 and 40 degrees on that kick, so that ball came out low, too. So there's, there were two big problems on that kick that ended up with it getting blocked. Was there anything that you saw, and I know you looked at it this morning, 
with uh, from a mechanical standpoint, either this plant foot or anything like that that contributed, or did he just miss hit it? Well, so I looked at it, and typically, if a kicker gets fast with his mechanics, he tends to whip his leg in front of his hips, actually. And what you can end up with there is you end up with the, your your foot essentially striking the ball a little higher than you should. I think that's what happened. I think even if this kick wasn't blocked, I think it's probably wide to the left. And so, you know, from my perspective, I think he may have come through a little bit quick there. Strikes the ball maybe an inch or so high, which does cause it to come off lower than you'd expect. So I think, uh, you know, it's, it's something that was a major problem there. It's, it's something that's a fixable problem, but you can't have a kick coming off that low. So in any case, we are going to go to our first guest now. We have Dan Hatman from the Scouting Academy on the phone with us. Dan is the director of the Scouting Academy, and you can follow him on Twitter at Dan underscore Hatman. And Dan, appreciate you joining us. How are we doing today, gentlemen? We're, we're good. It's, I mean, it was a great weekend of football. We had a ton of close games, but I want to talk to you a little bit just about some of the stuff that's been going on behind the scenes in the front office of some NFL teams first before we get into the games, because you obviously were a scout for a number of years for a few different teams. And I want you to walk me through, in particular, what's going on down in Miami, because this has been a disappointing season for them, and hopefully you can give some clarity to some of the moves they're making now. Well, I think a lot of it comes down to owner expectation, which is something that really doesn't get discussed, I think, enough when we look at these decisions that get made as the impact of an owner. They have a very active owner behind the scenes. He wants to be... Um, engaged. He wants to trust his football people, um, but he's not distant. There are teams in the NFL where the owner basically shows up on Sundays and is gone the rest of the week. That is not the sense that I get. Even though he lives in New York, uh, he has a very active presence down there. And recently brought on former Jets GM Mike Tannenbaum, the head of the football operations, a year after hiring a new general manager in Dennis Hickey. And so right now the power structure starts with Ross and Tannenbaum, and with the moves that they made, what they feel like they have at the quarterback position, uh, this was supposed to be a year where they were pushing for playoffs, and uh, not just that, you know, they clearly wanted to be in the championship uh, conversation, and that that was not going to happen. They made a move early in the year in hopes of pulling themselves out of that, like a change internally would would help, and we have seen some positive results as the team kind of rallied around Campbell, but I think at the same time you're seeing the, the warts that they have on that roster, um, you know, rearing their ugly heads. So now they've stepped back again, and this time they've allowed the interim head coach to evaluate the staff because none of those guys are safe. None of them are going to be there next year. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it that way. The chances of them being there next year are, are slim. And the head coach wants to be physical. That's, that's his M.O., that's the game that he came from, played a tight end position. He believes in that kind of that style of football, and that is not the style of football that Bill Lazor has been instituting there. Bill comes from the college ranks, was recently at Virginia, then spent a couple of years with Chip Kelly, and he was going about it a little differently. And so you're just looking at a philosophical change mid-year at the offensive coordinator position and putting a, a brand-new play caller into the mix that's never done this before in hopes of all of a sudden becoming physical when they haven't been. And the chances of this uh, drastically changing performance on the field, I think, are very slim. I think we're throwing up Hail Marys at this point, trying to see if there's something that they can glean from this season that they can carry forward. But I guess the interesting thing from my perspective is the number of philosophical changes that they've gone through in the last 12 to 18 months 
and trying to put your finger on what do they want to be moving forward because of the personnel they have versus the philosophy they seem to want to go towards, they don't match up. What, is, what does this do to a guy like Ryan Tannehill, who has made some intermittent progress, obviously got a big new contract, so definitely isn't going anywhere next year. 2017, probably the earliest time they can do anything with him, but you figure you have potentially a new scheme coming in next season as well, so you're almost going through three offensive coordinators in a span of nine months. What does that do to a guy who was just starting to show some development here? It really doesn't help, and that's kind of the unique thing is when you listen to him talk, he didn't seem to be behind Bill Lazor in the system that he was playing in. The ironic part is that last year, his first year in that system, was his best year as a pro. Yeah. And it's far and away his best year as a pro, and it maximizes his strengths and minimizes his weaknesses. This is not – Ryan Tannehill is not going to be ever in the conversation of the elite quarterbacks in this league where you strap up everything behind them, throw them in the kitchen sink at their feet, and expect them to perform. Ryan has a skill set that – if managed correctly, can lead to victory. And that's what Laser had last year. Now, what happened between that last year and this year in terms of it not panning out, I don't know. But clearly, um, Ryan wasn't that excited about it. They're going to make a move. And then to your point, nine months, three scheme changes, it's a huge step back in terms of his development. It's just so hard for these guys. You know, they're changing footwork. They're changing drops. They're changing timing how they're reading defenses, what they're being asked to do with the line of scrimmage can all change drastically. And so now you got to get a new coach in there that has a very clear, specific plan for how to get the most out of Tannehill because to an earlier point that you made, he only has one year left. The way that contract was done, it was a two-year deal with basically a team option after that for two more. And so if his performance doesn't rise to where Ross and Tenenbaum see it needing to be, they can get out of them next year and then start this whole process all over again in 2017 with a new quarterback and a second-year coach and so forth and so on. But it's just kind of hard sitting back from the, the cheap seats right now to put your finger on what do they want to be in 2016. Dan, we've got a general manager search that's underway up in Detroit, and it looks like they're looking at some of the executives from other organizations such as New England and Seattle and Baltimore. How should teams go about this general manager search process? What goes into finding somebody new to run things from a personnel point? So this is something that doesn't uh, have a whole lot of light shined on it from an outside perspective. Um, This happens in in the the back rooms and the corner offices. So this is a decision made by the owner or ownership group and done with their counselors that can help them identify – the football person to build a program and lead the organization. And the ironic thing that comes to pass for me is a lot of these owners will admit they're not that high in their football acumen in terms of making these decisions. And so how does someone who does not have domain experience in football pick someone with enough domain experience in football to make all the right decisions? And so what ends up happening is you know, there's a few powerful agents out there in that space. They get their candidates brought in the mix. We hear the same name. Every national reporter will release the same names of the top 15 guys over the next few weeks. And they're all coming from the same two or three agents that represent those, those executives, the number twos and number threes at a variety of organizations. We're going to hear those names over and over again. And the owners are going to hope that whoever they 
uh, decide is uh, has enough football acumen to pick someone with enough football acumen gets to make the decision. So in Detroit, you have an owner who's she's just kind of grabbing the reins down. She's going to take charge. Clearly, we're seeing the results of that. Then they've appointed a, a president of the team who's going to head up the business operations who admits that he could not be the president for any other team, just this one, and that he doesn't know football. And so they have decided to go hire Ernie Corsi, who that's going to be their football guy. Ernie's going to be the one who's going to weed through all the football stuff and tell them who he thinks is going to be the best candidate. And the nice thing, I guess, is that Ernie at least is on the leadership panel there for the NFL, who is supposed to vet all the up-and-coming executives and help filter through and present those to the ownership group. Um, but you do tend to see those guys nominate candidates for interviews that they've worked with before. You know, we saw it last year with McCagnan in New York, who was a previous protege of um, Casserly, and in Carolina, Dave Gettleman uh, had worked for Ernie Corsi in New York, and it's nothing against those guys. I think that you know they're doing a great job in New York and Carolina, respectively. But I just wonder how thorough the process is when you have people making the decision that admit they don't have the acumen to make the decision. Yeah, it's, defi- it's definitely a, uh, a process that, and the problem is, you know, you're really only making that decision potentially a couple times while you're the owner, maybe three, you know, three, four times, and so you don't have a ton of knowledge to fall back on. But, Dan, I, I appreciate you coming on with us today. We actually we have another guest coming on in just a couple minutes, so I want to make sure we can get over there. But thanks again for all the info here. R- really interesting because most people have no idea what goes on behind the scenes, and we really appreciate having you on here. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Dan Hatman from the Scouting Academy. He is the director there, and you can follow him on Twitter at Dan underscore Hatman. Mark, what, what, what's your sense? I mean, obviously, you know, you and I aren't front office guys, so we don't, you know, really dig into to that aspect too much. But in terms of, you know, hiring a GM, as Dan said, look, it's something that, you know, guys don't have a ton of experience with, but it's the most important decision that an owner makes. Yeah, I mean, it really is, and especially when you think about how some teams structure the the decision-making process on the personnel side, both on the field with the player evaluation standpoint and off the field kind of, and, you know, you think of head coaches and things like that, but, you know, filter it all the way down. It's a big web, these football teams. It's a huge organization, so you've got scouts that you got to think about, both in terms of advanced scouts looking at the you know the game ahead the next week and obviously player evaluation scouts were going to be going to Tuscaloosa to see Derrick Henry play so these decisions all kind of have this almost a domino effect to them that you want a football guy a football mind in that seat in the general manager's chair who knows the right scouts to hire knows the right talent evaluation guys to go after so the entire organization is just one well-oiled machine. So that's the goal, and it's a huge decision. And you want to make sure that you get the right guy or get the right woman in that seat so the team can win on the field. Yeah, and it's, it's difficult because especially you look at a lot of the guys who are owners, they're new to the sport in a lot of cases. They don't necessarily know what is uh, you know what they're trying to do. Or even in a case like uh, Detroit, you know that's not new ownership there, but it's definitely an ownership group that the main focus is not necessarily – on the football team on the field. So I do want to go now to our next guest. It is Brandon Thorne. He writes over at thefootballeducator.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Veteran Scout. And, Brandon, I'm not going to lie. It's a little tough having yeah, you on this yeah. week. <laughs> little tough. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Little tough. But 
I figured there's no one better to break down the Denver Broncos and how they uh, dismantled the Patriots defense, particular, particularly in the second half of that game than you. And so can you shed some light? I guess one thing that I saw, or at least rather a stat that I saw, is that once Dante Hightower went out for the Patriots, the running game for the Denver Broncos really kicked into high gear. And how were they able to be so successful there? What were they doing from a scheme perspective that New England just couldn't stop? Yeah, well, you, you make a good point. Hightower is one of the best run-defending linebackers in the game. And, uh, you know, also Jamie Collins was out that game as well. So pretty much once Hightower went out, you had basically two backups in the middle. And uh, Denver didn't really do a whole lot different when that happened. They obviously were executing better um, because Hightower was out and, you know, the linebackers that were placed in Mayo, um, you know, and the other guy, number 55, I'm not sure who that is. But, but yeah, I was, you know, I just watched every snap. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, the Broncos were executing very well, not doing a whole lot different. Um, you know, they are rotating offensive linemen. Uh, particularly in the middle, you know, with Mathis and Garcia. Um, in the second quarter, they put Max Garcia, the rookie from Florida, at right guard, and then left Mathis at, yeah, left Evan Mathis at left guard and stuck with that the rest of the game, and it looked really good. Um, and, you know, I'd be surprised if the Broncos didn't stick with that lineup um, on the interior uh, moving forward because both of those guys played really well. And, um you know, we'll give credit to Malcolm Brown. He was a beast that game, and he was just incredible. So, you know, I, I think, you know, from what I saw in the tape, it looked like he kind of wore down towards the end of the game, and he lost a little bit um, of, of juice. So, you know, that's kind of what I saw. Brandon, having gone through the tape now, um, talk a little bit about Brock Osweiler. Obviously, this was his second start. Um, I know you've gone through the film. What did you see from him? And how do you think he fits this Kubiak scheme that they're running out in Denver? Yeah, well, he, I think he fits really well. Um, obviously, he's a better fit than Peyton Manning. Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call him mobile, but compared to uh, Peyton Manning, he, he's probably pretty mobile. Um, you know, and just that little bit of movement that he can get, you know, on boots and just really in the pocket when, you know, things collapse because they do collapse a lot because the offensive tackles are still not very good in Denver. And, uh, you know, he got crushed, you know, in Sunday as well. Both starts, um, Kubiak talked about it saying, you know, they, they have to protect him better because same thing with Peyton. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of the same deal. You know, Brock's facing a lot of pressure, but, but, yeah, he, he played well despite that. You know, I, I think the most impressive thing about Brock to me is his competitive toughness, you know, and just to hang in there and take those shots and, you know, basically stare down the rush and deliver, you know, strikes over the middle, deep down the field. I mean, that throw, you know, his two throws in the fourth quarter to uh, to tie the game, you know, one to the right side to Demarius Thomas and then left one to uh, Emmanuel Sanders. I mean, those were gorgeous throws. And he did it in the face of pressure. So I think that's the most encouraging thing about him, you know, to me, is his toughness. Um, he didn't, other than those two throws, you know, I don't, I wouldn't really call it, you know, his performance great. But, um, you know, the running game is key. If we can run the, run the ball in this scheme, then the quarterback is just going to look better. 
One of the things that kind of stood out to me, and I don't know if you saw the same thing from Osweiler, was his ability to change arm angles when making a throw. I mean, sometimes there's not a clear throw at landing. You've got to make one somehow, either with your feet or dropping the arm down a bit. And he did that a couple of times, and I was wondering if you saw that as well. Yeah, I did. Uh, I just got through on Twitter. I probably highlighted, I don't know, 25, 30 plays um, via video clips. And a couple, well, one of the video clips in particular was a, uh, it was one of the biggest plays in the game. I believe it was the third quarter. Um, Brock adjusted his arm angle on a little uh, flare route to CJ Anderson on the left side, and that's the that's the play that uh, we got that huge face mask added onto it. I believe it was third and eleven. Um, he got instant pressure, and his arm angle adjusted, you know, more uh, high than low, and you know, delivered a strike to CJ Anderson. Um, he went for the first down, then we got a face mask on top of it, and that kind of that was a big turning point in the game. So, but yeah, I did see that, um, and you have to do that with this uh, pass protection. Unfortunately, you have to be able to adjust that arm angle, and that that requires a certain level of athleticism, I think, and um, you know, just kind of stature, you know, that he has. And uh, I don't know that Peyton Manning's really capable of, of you know adjusting arm angles that that well anymore. So that's kind of a Another plus on Brock's side that he has over Peyton, I think. Switching to the other side of the ball, I know you highlighted at least one play and talked about this a little bit, but Vaughn Miller looked to have an impact on this game, even though it might not have shown up in the stat sheet. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what I focused on with my little breakdown that I just did uh, with Vaughn. I mean, you know, there was a series in the fourth quarter um, when – the Patriots got the ball. Uh, it was before their last drive, the second to last drive, and they went three and out. But Vaughn forced two penalties. He had a hands to the face coming off the right side, and then he twisted um, with the defensive tackle on the, his primarily left side, forced a holding penalty, killed the drive, um, and he was just in pain or in uh, Brady's face the whole game. I mean, the sacks thing. You know, as as we know, you know, you can't look at that to determine the effectiveness of the pass pressure. I mean, you have to look at advanced stats at least, you know, look at pressures and hurries and knockdowns. And he pretty much did all three of those. I mean, I didn't count, but I mean, if I had to pick a player of the game, it was Vaughn Miller. All right, Brandon, looking forward now. We're about, I think, 150 days to the NFL draft, and I know you're going to be down in Mobile for the Senior Bowl. There's going to be a player or two that you're really excited to see up close, and who are those guys? Oh, man. You know, Devontae Booker is one that pops off instantly. I mean, I love the way he plays. Another guy that's kind of similar as far as just more like a tough inside runner who does a lot of the little things well is Kenneth Dixon from uh, Louisiana Tech. I mean, those two running backs right there for me are, you know, I'm extremely excited to see those guys. Um, looking at the list, you know, I, I see a lot of offensive linemen that I've heard of, but I haven't gotten a chance to watch yet. Uh, in particular, Josh Garnett from Stanford and Jack Allen from Michigan State. Those are two guys that I've heard a lot of good things about, and I'm really excited to get into the film on them and, and also the defensive line and linebackers. I mean, Kentrell Brothers, that's a guy. Jordan Jenkins from Georgia. I mean, there, there's a lot of big names already. Carl Nassau, you know, Shalik Calhoun. So, you know, I primarily focus on the offensive and defensive line. So, 
you know, I just haven't had a chance really to get into the film on these guys. I've just kind of heard things. So I'm really excited to uh, break these guys down before I head down there. Outstanding. Well, Brandon, appreciate you joining us today. Uh, you know, certainly great insight. We always love hearing what you have to say about the Broncos, and in particular, uh, you know, what's going on on their offensive lineup. You do a great job with that on Twitter, and uh, definitely uh, we'll recommend you over to anyone who needs any Broncos-related information. Thanks again for coming on. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Brandon Thorne from the thefootballeducator.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Veteran Scout. And, Mark, I think you made an interesting point there, uh, you know, briefly just talking about arm slot and, you know, how that's something that you can do if you're a quarterback to, you know, really figure out how to, to get the ball away from the maze of arms that can be up there sometimes. Can you talk a little bit about the decision-making that goes into that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, frankly, though, is just muscle memory. I mean, things that have worked for a quarterback in the past, you can draw on that in that split-second moment. I mean, if you think about, you know, say you get, you know, a defense that shows an A-gap blitz and they actually come and you get an unblocked defender in your face and you've got to get the ball out, you might not have time to buy, you know, might not have a chance, might not have enough time to extend the play with your feet. So you've got to do something different. And if you give your normal, you know, three-quarters or slightly overhead um, release point, it's going to get knocked down. You're going to throw it into the defender's face. So you've got to either drop the arm to the side. I mean, there was a great example, Trevon Boykin, the TCU quarterback, threw, I think, a touchdown pass on this very kind of concept earlier in the season where got a free rusher in his face and he dropped almost to a completely sidearm release to kind of work the ball around the defender. It's, you know, like when I say muscle memory, it's stuff that's worked in the past, either in games or, you know, just when you're a kid playing in the backyard, you do something like that to, you know, force a throw, get a throw, bend the ball around somebody and yep. get the ball out to a wide receiver and keep the play alive. Yeah, and, and it's it's something that, again, look, I'm a kicker, so anything arm-related is generally foreign territory for me, so I need all the clarification I can get. I'm here to clarify. I, I, I appreciate it, man. I need that. But, Mark, we're going to do something that we haven't done uh, previously, I think, and that's actually talk about some college football. Ooh, college football. We're we've got championship games coming, my friend. We've got championship games, so we figured we might as well get some experts in to talk college ball. There and joining go. us on the line now, we have Trevor Sakema from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as well as SEC Country. And Trevor, I appreciate you coming on with us today. Hey, man. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, Trevor, look, we're Mark and I are both up north. He's further south than I am. He's down in D.C. I'm up in Boston. We don't do a ton of college football up here, so I know that down there, this is about as big as it gets when we're talking about the SEC championship game. Break it down just from kind of a 50,000-foot level. What are we looking at in this game? Yeah, so um, you're definitely right. Uh, certainly the football culture in the South is uh, can be a little crazy at times and all kind of comes to a head for these championship games and these conferences. Um, a little different this year. Um, we're we're kind of looking at – a very one-sided matchup on paper with Alabama and Florida, but um, you know, it's a game that's always had playoff implications, whether it was with the BCS or the College Football Playoff Committee, and 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 that's the same thing here uh, for this week. So even though Florida has a very high, almost mountainous uphill battle, it seems uh, versus Alabama, it's you know from from the coaches' quotes and the players' quotes and. There's a lot of respect between these two teams. And so even though there's been struggles had uh, from one side, from Florida, uh, it, it's definitely one that the people who are involved are taking seriously because they know the magnitude of what it means. 
Is this a game where, in particular, I know that Florida has struggled offensively this year. They are ranked, I think it's 74th in passing yards per game, 104th in rushing yards per game. And Alabama, you're dealing with the third best defense in the country by points allowed. It's going to be tough for that Florida offense to get anything going here, right? Yeah, and you know the main the main problem is going to be Alabama's insane defensive line versus Florida's struggling offensive line. And going into the year, that was going to be a problem for Florida. Was going to be the offensive line. They're young. Uh, the chemistry's kind of off. You obviously have a new coach, a new co- offensive coordinator coming in. But when Will Greer was starting for Florida, he was able to kind of mask some of those offensive line problems with really being accurate on some of the shorter routes with the slants, curls, being able to, you know, wheel routes, things like that, things that are easy passes that you can get around uh, zones and kind of trick the defense for, get the ball to your hands really quick. The problem now, and the reason why they're statistically so far down on that list, is because Treon Harris hasn't shown he can make those kinds of passes. So he's standing in the pocket longer than he normally should with an offensive line like Florida has, and that's causing problems not only because he's not as polished of a quarterback as Will Greer, but also, people don't know, he's short. He's, he's like 5'10". <laughs> when, when you get these monsters on the defensive and offensive line, it's hard to see over the line, especially on those quick routes that you need to really help the offensive line out. So it's really a perfect storm of of. of kind of bad luck and bad situations with Treon Harris. And that, yes, goes into what you uh, talked about earlier with them being so far down on that list. Trevor, let's not sleep on this Florida defense, though. I mean, this is a defense that's, you know, ninth in the country against the pass, seventh in the nation against the run, and they're fifth overall in total defense. If Florida does have a path to victory, and like you said, the mountain's high, is it with their defense maybe generated some turnovers and given Treon Harris a short field or two? Yeah, and, and that's the thing. is that At the beginning of the year, we saw this Florida defense convert a lot more of their turnovers into points, granted because their offense was better. But still, they had you know a couple of pick sixes, some big fumbles with uh, big returning charges, just giving the offense a great situation to score points, if not scoring points for themselves. But the problem is, is that these last couple of games, they haven't been creating these turnovers or – I don't want to say creating. I guess they've had their opportunity, but they haven't been capitalizing on them. And and that's one thing that, yes, they absolutely have to do if they want to have a chance against Alabama. And, uh, again, like you said, that's, that's not something that's completely um, – to think that that can't happen. For example, the, the Iron Bowl last week, Jacob Coker probably had two or three throws that straight up should have been intercepted, one of them for a pick six. Yeah. So it's not like Jacob Coker's this surgeon that's going to be able to get by them and limit turnovers himself. But uh, for Florida to do it, you're right. They're going to have to generate pressure up front. They're going to have to be stout in their press coverage, and they're going to have to make Coker uh, take some shots deep that they're the ones who capitalize on. And I think that's going to be the big battle uh, between Florida secondary and what Lane Tiffin wants to do with Calvin Ridley in particular. Trevor, one thing that I want to touch on also, Alabama's kicker, Adam Griffith, uh, you know, has had kind of an up-and-down career over the last couple of years, came in as a very highly touted prospect, 
and in his uh, year last year, you know, really struggled a little bit in some key games for them, has been somewhat better this year. But what's the sense down there in terms of if they do get into a close game and have to rely on him, how much confidence is there in him to be able to convert at this point? Well, well, I'll tell you this. There's a lot more confidence in him than there are on the kicking side for Florida. So uh, <laughs> if, we're talking, yep. if we're, talking about a, we're talking about a battle, a uh, kicking battle, then we got to tip our hats to tide on that one. But you're right. You know, Griffith's been a little hot and cold during his career there. But uh, I think he had, I think it was five field goals last week versus Auburn. Um, you know, varying from all kinds of ranges. One of them I know is from 50 yards. And, yep. uh, you know, when you're hitting with that kind of consistency, that's the difference maker, and that's kind of an area that makes good teams great. And that's a big reason why, say, Florida State played so well and was able to get as many wins in a row as they did in the last two years and even this year. It's because they have Roberto Aguayo, and he's the best kicker in the nation. He makes it so easy to get them in field goal range. Yep. And, you know, for Alabama, that kicking battle – it should be there. And Griffith is coming into his own. He's on a hot streak right now. Uh, so, honestly, if I'm Alabama and if I'm Alabama fans, I don't have any problem relying on him right now because he's been able to get it done as of late. So, um, you know, if he misses one, that's just kicking. That's how it is. But I, I honestly expect him to be pretty reliable uh, going into the matchup. Yep, kickers can always get a little bit streaky. So, if you've got a hot guy going into the postseason – Never a bad thing to have. But, Trevor, we are uh, out of time, but I do appreciate you coming on. And uh, thanks again. We'll be uh, we'll check in with you maybe in the next week or so to see if we can get a recap of that championship game. All right, guys. Sound good. All right. Trevor Sakema from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as well as SEC Country. You can follow him on Twitter, at Trevor Sakema. And, Mark, one thing that we've put aside in this show that, look, it's it's gone on too long without getting to this segment. we we got to go stamper. We gotta go stamper. We gotta well, go stamper. We're actually gonna. We can combine. This is great. I actually like the way this is gonna work out. We can combine the Harry Stamper Offensive Play of the Week, brought to you by Stamper Oil, helping you drill deep. We can combine it with the inside the pylon glossary. Yeah, and I know. So this is a play. It is from the uh, Washington game this week. It's a completion from Kirk Cousins to Deshaun Jackson. And why don't you walk our listeners through what you uh, detailed? You actually wrote this up for InsideThePylon.com as well. Yep, and it's actually on the site right now. You can go check it out to see what we're talking about. But what we're talking about here, it's something called the Yankee concept, which is a glossary entry we have up on the Inside the Pylon website as well. It's typically a max protection design where you only send two receivers out into the pass pattern usually off of play action on this example here from washington's victory over the giants they actually bring in will compton a, a reserve uh, tackle um line him up in the wind to the right so they're showing new york pre-snap the run indication you've got an extra offensive tackle into block and win alignment cousins takes the snap and they show a split zone design where they fake alfred morris on the outside zone run to the left and they actually bring Jordan Reed, the other tight end, who's also in a win alignment on the left. He blocks across the formation, and it looks like he's going to block the defensive end in that sort of split zone scheme. But he actually helps set up the pocket because after Cousins fakes the handoff, he uses a half roll back to the right. Like I said, with this Yankee concept, it's two pass patterns. The first will be an over route, a deep crossing pattern, and that's run by Pierre Garcon coming from the left, crossing over the middle towards the right side. 
On the right side, you have the other pass pattern, which is a post route from Deshaun Jackson. And he uses what's called a dino stem. And then what the dino stem is, and that's also a glossary term, which is up on the website now on inside the pylon. Loading up on the vocab words here. Yeah, I know. We just throw it a lot at you, and we're doing that today. But we got a lot to cover here. The dino stem on a post route. Receiver breaks vertically, and when he reaches the top of his stem, he shows the defense, shows that free safety, usually the single high safety. That's when this concept is best. A corner route. He'll bend his route quickly to the outside, try to get that single high safety to widen. And then you cut right to the middle of the field on the post, and you can try to get kind of underneath that single high safety. And that's exactly what happens on this play. Brandon Merriweather, who's playing the free safety spot in this cover two it's a cover two scheme pre-snap they drop Landon Collins down Merriweather rotates that single high safety as Cousins carries out that fate you can see Merriweather keep his eyes in the backfield a bit he's peeking at that run to the outside when he finally starts the back pedal that's when Deshaun Jackson shows him that dino stem Merriweather takes a few steps to the towards the sideline Jackson then cuts underneath him on the post pattern gets separation using speed and they're just it's just a matter of outrunning Merriweather, and Cousins makes a great throw. What do you take from Kirk Cousins at this point? I know he, he's been a guy. You've been, you've been talking about Kirk for pretty much since the first week of last year. Yeah, and I have to give a shout-out here to our good friend Dave Archibald. Um, as everybody probably saw, it was one of the most watched finds this NFL season when Kirk Cousins came off the field and gave that you like that to the media people over at FedEx Field after they beat the Buccaneers. You know, they had T-shirts printed up, and I came home one day last week, and Dave was kind enough to send me one because, yeah, I've been writing about Kirk Cousins a lot, and what's it, what I've found with him is he's kind of a – I don't want to say streaky, but it seems like especially this season, it's good week, bad week, good week, bad week. And, you know, this week was a good week for Washington. They got a big division win for them. I mean, somebody – like I wrote about, somebody has to win that NFC East. I mean, and right now it's Washington and the Giants that are in a tie atop that division. But Washington's schedule, I think, is a little bit favorable. I mean, looking at who they play coming up, if Cousins can possibly string together – a couple of good games do they win the division maybe i mean anyone can win that division at this point <laughs> except I, I for dallas that, that except for dallas I mean, philadelphia is still you know they're still kind of in the hunt although that looks to be like a sinking ship dallas I mean, is the one team i write off there yeah i think you kind of have to write dallas off because i mean at this point i mean i don't know i might be taking snaps for dallas next week at this point given you know now rome was done for the year so how many quarterbacks have to go out before you get the call Mm. Is it is know. it like a hundred? Is it a thousand? Where do you think you stand? What are Akili Smith and Joey Harrington doing these days? Because I think I'm probably on the depth on the like. If you look at the global quarterback depth chart, I'm probably. Oh wait, no, I got to take that back because I'm even below. I don't know. I mean, I I think is Flutie's probably above me still on the depth chart. Flutie still got game. I mean, I, I mean, if it came down to you know 38 year old me and Doug Flutie, uh, you'd take Doug Flutie in a heartbeat, right? I mean, I think any general manager would do that. Maybe we can ask Dan next time we get him on. Probably take him before the heartbeat, actually. But in any case, uh, I do think we are out of time for the day, Mark. Full show. Full packed show, man. We threw a lot of the listeners. I hope they enjoyed it. It was a full show today. As always, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash inside the pylon. You can follow us on Twitter at ITPylon. Mark and Chuck, we'll be back next week. We'll see you later.